How do you normally start cooking? Olive oil, right? Well, I have great news for you. This podcast is also brought to you by California Olive Ranch, expertly crafted extra version olive oil. Go to CaliforniaOliveRanch.com and enter the promo code CHICKENS10, that's one word, CHICKENS10, to receive 10% off your entire first purchase. The offer is available through December 31st. California Olive Ranch, discovery starts in the bottle. Let's start the show. Pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. Shredu Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Hello there, my chickens and dishes. How are you? Welcome back for another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David G. Martins, or David Guimarães Martins, and I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And as always, just in case, if this is your first time listening, let me explain to you why my podcast has this exceptional name. I'm originally from Portugal, and I've been living in Washington, D.C. for the last nine years. And the name of the podcast refers to two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience, and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. I'll be asking my guests if we've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes. Every episode I'll have a guest and we'll talk about everything related to food, not necessarily ingredients or dishes, but how through food we can help communities, the success of small business owners, the fascinating stories that we remember growing up with our family sitting around the table, and even what's the best breakfast ever. Don't forget to subscribe to my podcast and all the platforms you have access to. You can follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes or the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. If you want to support this podcast, go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. I hope you enjoy listening to every episode and don't forget I'm Portuguese. So if you don't understand something, just Google it. Crusty, polished, waxed, oiled, gritty rough and wrinkled. No, I'm not describing my guest personality, but characteristics of cheese. Why? Because my guest today has been passionate about cheese since 2000. Since then, he travels the world to meet with cheesemakers and learn more about this art. In 2014, he set up the Cheese Tasting Company to bring cheese to people. His cookbook, A Cheesemonger's History of the British Isles, was released last October, which was shortlisted for the Andreas Simon Food and Drink Prize and has sold over 15,000 copies. Ned Palmer, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. How are you? Good, thanks. Pretty hot, yeah. Yeah, you were just telling me off the record, it's a little <laughs> hot in the UK, yes. Have you been to Portugal? I have indeed. So yeah, I'm super lucky because my mum moved to Porto more about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more. Uh, the first time we went over, uh, we came back and started learning Portuguese and started bringing estate agents and started, you know, traveling around nearby Porto looking for places to buy. It turns out that writing books isn't quite as lucrative as you would think. So we shelved <laughs> the whole movie to Portugal plan. But they have excellent cheese. We do. Yes. Yeah. You probably know, of course, but do you know any Portuguese words? Do you know how to say the word cheese in Portuguese? Uh, casual. Oh, okay. You won. Okay. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> Can I start with a yeah. cheese joke for you or no? Sure, try me. What do you call a dinosaur made of cheese? I don't know. Gorgonzilla. <laughs> oh, wow, that's a new one. You are the first person in the history of cheese jokes to tell me a new cheese joke. You didn't laugh, but it's okay. Well, I was so amazed that I went to wow mode before laughing. <laughs> that was brilliant. Where does your passion for cheese come from? You know, that is a question that I ask myself all the time. And in a way, I wrote the book to answer this question. 
it's, it's not so much a cookbook as an exploration of the history of cheese making in Britain and Ireland, but it's also a way of exploring the idea that cheese is a product of culture. So what I've, I've always loved history. My father was a historian. And from when I was really little, I used to help him in quotes, you know, in the British Library, I'd help him with research. So I had this interest in history. I think I'm fascinated in complex systems and cheese making as a complex system. I think cheese is fractal in the sense that the more you explore any part of cheese or cheese making, the chemistry or the culture or the history, there's just more complexity. I think cheese is infinite. I think that's, that's a big reason for me. And the other thing, I always joke, this is kind of true, is that, see, I did a philosophy degree. And it's about the most unvocational thing you could possibly do. So after I decided I didn't want to be a philosopher, I just walked about the world doing stuff. So I worked in the theatre for quite a while and I wrote music for theatre. Mm -hmm. Builders labourer, librarian, hospital porter, I worked for a kind of environmental NGO. But um, so I did all sorts of things and I came back from uh, Australia where I was um, discovering that you can't make a living by doing theatre came back to England just for a visit and my friend said come and sell my cheese at Borough Market and this was Gorwith Kefili which is now one of my favourite cheeses and it's a proper unpasteurised handmade farmhouse cheese. December of 2000 I went down to the market and he gave me a taste of the cheese before I started selling it and my life was immediately changed because I realised I'd never had cheese like that before in my life and I was almost angry as I realised that I'd been missing out. And so I started asking him questions. And a few weeks later, he said, look, I'll get you a job at Neil's Yard Dairy if you stop asking me questions. So it was immediate fascination. This mm -hmm. is a very long answer. I could do the whole bit, the whole podcast, just on why I love trees. <laughs> Can you describe your book? And is there any fact or story that you found particularly interesting? <laughs> it's other well, podcasts, right? That's a question for, yeah, it's a whole podcast, yeah. Well, so the thing that just springs to my lips straight away is the Great Cheese War of 1766, which is the most fun. But the thing is, there's this moment in, it's a moment in archaeology, and I think 2011, some archaeologists in Bristol figured out a way to tell that the fat on these pieces of pottery from 4000 BC was dairy fat. And it had to be from cheese making. So there's this moment when we discovered that we've been making cheese in Britain since 4000 BC. And before then, we thought the Romans came to teach us. So in one sense, to me, it's this realisation that it's such an ancient part of British and Irish culture. And the idea that this one little find can open a whole kind of avenue of exploration. So that was incredibly fascinating. The Cheese War of 1766 started in um, Northampton. It was basically after the Seven Years' War, which Britain won. But it cost us a huge amount of money. So taxes went up, prices went up, price of food went up. And also merchants were buying food in the towns and villages and the small markets and taking it away uh, to bigger markets. And the people in, um, in Northampton just got really upset with this. And they started um, shaking down the cheesemongers selling cheese and telling them they had to sell it at the old price. And then they started just getting um, more and more rambunctious. And they, they rolled a massive cheese off down the... Uh, the road and it knocked over the mayor of the town who'd come out to, to tell them all off. They had to bring out the cavalry to put mm -hmm. people down. Um, some guys hijacked a boat, a barge on the river full of cheese. So this is an act of cheese river piracy. And there was a siege of a barn full of cheese. And the guys tried at first and were driven off with cannon fire. 
and they finally managed to take this warehouse. So these are tough guys, you know, and steal all the cheese. And they took it to the local village and had a massive party. <laughs> uh, the Great Cheese War is my favourite. It's, it's my favourite story. <laughs> so you mentioned, so how long have humans been uh, eating cheese? What are the first records? You know, this answer changes all the time. But as in the book, and as far as I know, the oldest evidence for humans making cheese is from about six and a half thousand BCE. So before common era, so eight and a half thousand years ago, that's the first evidence. It's in northern Turkey, and it's tight. It's just shards of pottery with traces of milk fat on them, and some of the shards have holes in, so they're like strainers to strain curd. And the theory is that humans then were allergic to milk. All adult humans were allergic to milk. We stopped being able to digest milk as soon as we stopped breastfeeding. So there is no reason to keep milk in containers unless you're turning it into cheese, which you can digest because all the lactose has been converted. Yeah. So there's a kind of logic. It's not that we went back in time and saw them making cheese. Also, humans, I believe, invented cheese making so that they could digest milk because they saw all this milk. They had all these goats, you know, that they were probably keeping more from meat. Couldn't drink the milk, made them sick. Some guy figured it out. You know, the milk went sour or something and he ate a bit and it converted. And then they realized they could do that. What was the first cheese like, you know? Uh, well, I've got a theory. And in fact, I've got some good theories. So in the museum in Lisbon, actually, there is a set of cheese making equipment from the Chalcolithic, so the very late Stone Age. And one of them is a little cheese mold shaped a bit like a cup, but with holes in it. And it's exactly the same size and shape as my friend Mary Holbrook's cheese molds that she used on her farm in Somerset, which are made of plastic. And that makes a small, soft cheese. It's about three, four inches across. It's very simple. You just, you don't need much equipment. You just set milk where you let it sour. You add some rennet to coagulate it. And so I think soft, fresh cheese would be the first, most simple kind of cheese that people made. Do you make cheese at home? I, no, not not deliberately. <laughs> I, mean, I make yogurt. See, I'm not a cheesemaker, and there's a reason for the temperament. See, I like talking to people, and cheesemakers spend seven days a week in a dairy making cheese, most of because the cows don't stop. I'm not very consistent, so to be a really great cheesemaker, you have to even the movement should really be consistent from this table to the vat. Um, I mean, I make cheese with people. I visit and I make cheese. Under close supervision, I can make kind of okay cheese. We all know the regulars, but there are any unusual animals around the world that people make cheese from? In England, people tend to think of just cow's cheese. So in a way, now people understand about goat's cheese, although it's less was traditionally less common. And sheep's milk cheese, there are still people around who might be surprised that you would make sheep's. So even those animals are, you know, are surprising to us. Water buffalo... You know, for mozzarella, people would not know about so much here. There is a herd of water buffalo in Yorkshire that they're making cheese out of. Yak. Yak. Yaks. Okay. Herd of camel cheese. I think that's about it. You know, the milk has to be a certain, it has to have certain qualities. So mm -hmm. you, you can't really make human milk cheese. People have tried. Yes. It doesn't work very well. It doesn't set properly. Yeah. And I think there are other animals that where it doesn't really work. Can I tell you a joke? I used to sell a cheese called Gorwith Kefili, the, the cheese that made me a cheesemonger. And eventually I ended up running the stall and selling the cheese. And it's a cow's milk cheese from Wales. 
And I realised one week at Christmas time, it's busy at Christmas, you know, that I said cow's milk cheese from Wales more than a thousand times in one week because I finished a whole roll of stickers and there's a thousand stickers on a roll. So I'd sold a thousand said cow's milk cheese from Wales a thousand times and I got bored. So I said to someone, it's a Wales milk cheese from cows. Cows is an island off the, off the it's, it's a town on an island off the coast of England. So it's a Wales milk cheese and cows. And this person looked at me, was like, really? And inside, I was like, yes. So I started talking about how you have to milk whales <laughs> and how you get skewed, the very specialized divers. And, you, and for a few minutes, we both lived in a world where there are people milking whales. And then she realized <laughs> I was having fun, you know, but just for a few minutes, we lived there. So whales, that would be my answer. <laughs> Can you find seasonality in cheeses? Very, very much, yeah. And particularly with goat and sheep's milk. It's harder to get goats and sheep to milk outside the natural season. So all of the milk-giving animals would naturally start giving milk at the beginning of spring or in the very late winter, but say February, March, because they're, they're having babies. And then they would stop giving milk in autumn when the babies are weaned off. In historic cheese-making, it was mostly done in that period for all animals, particularly for goats and sheep's milk cheeses. You see more of them in the spring and summer. Cows, you can get, you can persuade to give you milk all year round. It's not quite as simple as that. I know there are herds of goats and flocks of sheep where they do manage to do this, but mostly that's more seasonal. The other thing is that cheese changes over the season because particularly in Northern European farming, the cattle are on pasture outside, you know, for, for the spring and summer and into the autumn. And then they come in to the barns and you feed them straw, hay rather, or silage, you know, fermented grass or hay. And that changes how the milk behaves. So Stilton is seasonal in the sense that the grass for Stilton is maybe at its most lush in around September, late August, September, you get really great grass. And the milk from that makes really great luscious cheese. It's about three or four months. So it's kind of just in time for Christmas, which is nice because we have Stilton at Christmas. So the cheese has changed. I mean, in the Alps, you go up and down the mountains and the pasture is different high up the mountain, but we don't have, the mountains aren't as big here. So we don't get that kind of variety. I also think cheese is seasonal because what you want to eat changes. So in the spring and summer, I like having fresh young cheese, which would be fresh young goat or sheep's cheeses that have just, you know, just come into season because it's hot. You want these fresh flavours yeah. in the winter, you know, big cheddars and stiltons. So it's seasonal in, in three different ways. Yeah. Has climate change affected the production of cheese? And if so, how so? I went to see an Irish cheesemaker in Cork a couple of years ago now, and they had had a long, long, long rainy season much longer than normal. It means they can't get the cows out because the ground's too soft for them. But when they stay in, at a point in the season where they need to be eating grass, it changes how the milk behaves. So he ended up having to cut grass by hand to then carry in and feed his cows. It's making the seasons more unpredictable. Where I really noticed the difference actually is more in the French cheeses that have very strict conditions. You now you have an AOC cheese, an Appellation So it's a protected recipe, but it says you can only feed the cattle from March to September or something. But if you lose the first two months to rain or something, you would need to shift the season later. And so the cheesemakers within those AOCs are having difficulties and they're going to have to change 
change the, the conditions of the AAC so to fit in with climate change. I think the main problem, as far as I understand, is more just unpredictability. You know that the seasons, God, even in our lifetimes, turned more predictably. What are the do's and the don'ts to make the perfect cheese platter? My do's are more interesting than my don'ts. So I would always go for a selection of flavors and textures and a selection of intensity. So if you only have three cheeses, you could have one of these soft, fresh goat's cheeses, like three days old with no rind. A soft, fresh goat's cheese. A harder cheese, maybe. Um, I'm going to do all British ones. So uh, a Lancashire, which is, a, do you know the territories? You know Lancashire? Bumbly, mm -hmm. lightly acidic, quite fresh. And then um, a blue cheese. So that's a bit more intense. With a softer, creamier texture. So Cashel Blue is an Irish um, cow's milk blue cheese from Tipperary. Really buttery and rich, but quite gentle. So that's just three cheeses, but I've already got a variety of, of flavour and texture. I would eat them in the order I just said. So you go from the milder to the stronger flavour. So I don't have loads of different cheeses. I think because you get confused. So I like having three quite large pieces, or rather three different cheeses and quite large pieces, and that's quite simple. Maybe five. I think about my friends. If Joe's kind of got a, he doesn't like strong flavors, you know, you get something mild for him, but you know that Sarah really loves strong flavors and curries. So you get maybe some Cabrales or something really intense. So you can think about the people you're bringing the, the platter to. I mean, obviously I have themes, you know, so I might come around to my friend's house with all Scottish, Irish and Welsh cheeses because this is a Celtic thing, but that's, you know, just making up a theme. I don't, I am a purist, and when I'm eating cheese seriously, you know, for tasting matters or for, for, for competitions or to write about it, I'm not going to have pickles or chutneys or accompaniments because I just need to focus on the cheese. On the whole, I would just let the cheese speak for itself, maybe some fresh fruit, different kinds. You can be very conscious. I think that matching acidity with acidity is a terrible idea. Usually, if you have two acidic things, you just get a lot of acidity. So I spent years telling people to have fresh green grapes with gore with kefili. And gore with kefili is quite acidic. And one day I actually tried it and it was just horrible. I've been yeah. telling people to do this. So, you know, one can be conscious and think, well, yeah. what, what are the flavours? What should I pick to contrast with them? I would get the cheeses out of the fridge a while before you want to eat them. So it's fine to keep cheese in the fridge, but get it out maybe an hour before. Often I forget and stand over the stove holding a piece of cheese. This never works. Don't do that. I think white wine's a better partner than red, but we can, maybe that's another question. I don't know. How was that for cheese boards? I mean, is that useful? No, actually, I was going. To, I was thinking while you were talking, the best pairing. You know, when you try cheese, what should you drink? Because I know you're a whiskey lover, right? Yeah, yeah. But you would you? I mean, whiskey. I would say it's not for everybody, probably, right? To no. try with. So, what's the best drink for you? Would be water to clean up the palate, or normally? Well, I mean, no. I mean, I don't think I could bear to do a cheese tasting without some wine or beer. I'd be really sad. Uh, <laughs> obviously, if I was judging in a cheese competition, it's water to clean the palate and very acidic fresh apples. So I think the most versatile partner for cheese is beer. I think there's such a range of flavors and mouthfeel and intensity within beer almost or possibly infinite that I find that really fascinating and I think a lot of the flavor notes you get in beer like aromatic notes from hops some of the malty caramel you know the flavors on the Maillard reactions you get in beer which you don't get in wine I don't think I haven't had one yet that's got a caramel flavor well okay maybe 
really dark old dessert one. But so I think beer is a really versatile partner and it's really fun. With wine, I don't know if this is the same in Portugal or in the States, but people get obsessed with red wine and cheese. And this is, people always say, oh, you must have red wine and cheese. There's probably more than 2,000 different kinds of cheese in the world now, so they can't all go with red. I mm -hmm. also think, I think white is a better partner. And if I had one bottle of wine to go with my five cheeses, I would have a white wine off dry, you know, a little bit of sweet, but a little bit of acidity to balance that. Quite intense, but not a crazy full-on Chateau you can, you know. And this would, that sweetness goes so beautifully with so many of the cheese flavours that that would be my general purpose match, would be that kind of, like a late bottle Riesling, Pinot Blanc, those sorts of things. Really oaky Chardonnay, maybe. The whiskey is fun. Whis whiskey and cheese matching is fun and really fascinating and quite a surprise. You know, the first time I was asked to do it, I thought, really, no, really, whiskey? But um, particularly gentle whisky, so the Irish ones that I had a fair bit of play with, and also of, of Scotland, the Campbelltown malts that are softer and more gentle. And it's great fun watching people when you do a tasting, and, and they've never done this before, whisky and cheese, and they all look sceptical. And then when they try it, and you can make a really great pairing. So there is, um, there's an Irish cheese called Coule, which is like a Dutch Gouda style. It's really sweet, tastes of butterscotch and caramel. So you can imagine with a whiskey with those kind of similar notes, it's just amazing. Is there any cheese that you have tried that you really, really don't like? There is a habit of adding, so this is geeky, but in some modern cheddars, they add a particular starter culture called Helveticus. It's also called an adjunct because it's, you add it onto the normal lactobacillic cultures that sour milk. It ripens fast. So you get more of the ripe flavour, more of the intense flavour fast. But it also is very sweet. And I can really taste it now. I'm attuned to it. So when I get a cheddar that has that really strong Helveticus, I don't like it. And it's the sweet and savoury somehow in that sense doesn't work. Having said that, I've had cheddars where I've gone, gosh, that's excellent. And it turns out it does have Helveticus. They've just used it a bit more skillfully. So that's quite geeky. Shifting the conversation here a little bit, what was your first memory of taste? Wow. It's funny because I'm thinking so much about cheese that I'm thinking about Yetost, which is a... Yetost is a very strange Norwegian cheese made from boiling whey until the sugar caramelizes and it looks like toffee. And I used to have this in my lunch bag when I went to school when I was six or seven. And if you don't know what it is, you think it's toffee. Like, and English people, if you haven't, because I was a child and went to Norway and had it when I was a child, I could understand it. That is one of my earliest memories. It's like, a, like cheese, but toffee. The most underrated ingredient for you or underrated cheese. I'll leave that up to you. Oh, that's nice. I mean, underrated ingredient, yeah. Well, I mean, underrated cheese is, in a sense... This is a difficult one to answer. Okay, so cheddar got a bad rep because it was the first cheese to be made in the factory, in a factory process. In fact, the Americans invented factory cheese making in, I think, in 1855 in New York State. Thanks very much, guys. Uh, and then came I, think you're being, I think you're being sarcastic right now. A little bit, a little bit. Um, and cheddar became the most widely produced cheese in the world until the 1960s when mozzarella took first place because of pizzas. So pizzas became really popular. But it meant that people got this 
impression of cheddar as being a mass-produced, not very interesting fruit. And when you have a really great, traditionally handmade cheddar, cloth-bound, made on a farm, it's just another experience. What is the overrated cheese for you? Oh, man. <laughs> I have to be really careful. You can choose an ingredient if you prefer. Because <laughs> I ask normally ingredients, well, but since cheese is your world, that's why. Yeah, it's got to be cheese. Um, Ned, you're the one who wrote a book about cheese. so I know. I wrote a book about cheese. I just... Um, Come on, well, Okay. So, look, I don't <laughs> want to offend the people of Sardinia. I don't think I have a lot of listeners from Sardinia, so we'll be fine. Okay, We're playing fine. safe here. Okay. Well, I've heard that they bear grudges, you know. So there's this cheese called Kazumazu, yeah. and it has worms in it. And, um, and the idea is that they eat the cheese and, and then soften it and convert it to soft paste. And it is apparently a gourmet experience. You get asked this all the time when you're a cheesemonger. Oh, have you had the cheese with worms? And no, I haven't. It's torn with worms. And the thing is, they have to be alive, the worms, oh, otherwise it's okay. toxic. And so you have to wear goggles so when you eat it. And I don't want to wear cheese where you need protective equipment. I think yeah. that's a terrible idea. The best breakfast you can have, and here I'm going to add the cheese as well, or the best yeah. cheese you can have for breakfast. There's a cheese called Gabine, and it's an Irish washed rind. So washed rinds, usually they're pink, sticky, and they're usually very pungent, very intense. Gabine... There's a really elegant, delicately flavoured floral cheese, and it's kind of bouncy, like it's got a bouncy texture. Mm -hmm. So it melts really beautifully, and it even remains delicate while it melts. So it could be on toast. Strangest combination, some people might do it, and we go for cheese again, yeah. that you just cannot accept. Some people that might add cheese to something, and you're like, no. <laughs> I've got very broad tastes. Isn't there a cheese tea or something in China? Have I made that up? Again, uh, now you the one who wrote the book. Don't start asking me questions. <laughs> you bite me hard on me, David. Sorry. Um, biggest yeah. thing that I've ever eaten, and that there's quite a big, you know, it's a crowded field, was an umeboshi plum from Japan. And it's a kind of salted pickled plum. And the thing was, I'd never had anything like it before. And I didn't know what to expect when my friend gave me it. And I, and I apologize now to the Japanese people, but it was the most horrible thing I'd ever put in my mouth. And apparently it's a great delicacy in Japan. And it just made me realize something, that there's this thing about expectation and about what you're culturally used to, like PB&J sandwiches. I spent a year in the States when I was seven. I love them. You know, maybe some people don't like them. So I think what you grow up eating or what is in your cultural context to eat can be utterly horrific to someone else, like this thing was to me. And I think I'm quite a broad eater. So that strange combination of sweetness with pickle and salt was horrifying to me. So now my listeners from Japan and Italy are gone because you already yeah, smashed two countries. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, any more nations you'd like me to offend? <laughs> so the name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. Those are two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that exceeded all expectations. Have you been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? Well, both, I guess, yeah. I mean, look, when I started writing this book, I had no idea if I could even finish it. Um, I really didn't. I mean, halfway through, even I'd have a good writing day and then I'd suddenly sit there and think, what if I can't have another one? So for one thing, for me, just, just pressing send on a manuscript was an enormous achievement. You know, I respect anyone who just sits down at a typewriter and types and a hundred thousand times, you know. 
So that just doing that was was an enormous um, achievement for me, and I was quite shocked. I'd been entered for several prizes. I didn't win any of them, and I discovered that actually being entered in some ways is as good, if not better, than winning because you realise that in the shortlist, you're looking at these other people on the shortlist. There's a woman called B. Wilson. Everyone should read B. Wilson. Absolutely wonderful English food writer, um, really thoughtful woman. And I was on the bill with her, you know, like that was my life achievement. I didn't care if yeah. I won a prize. But mm-hmm. one of the, the thing that makes me weep is that I get emails from cheesemakers who've read the book, especially the old ones. Like, oh, yeah, that's what it was like. Or, or you know, and they really they appreciate it. And that makes me hugely proud. So I'm writing, I'm working on another book at the moment called A Cheesemonger's Compendium of the British Isles, which is a list of 150 cheeses from Britain and Ireland. My editor said as we were going to lockdown, listen, do you want to write another book? I said, well, maybe. He said, well, can you tell me by Wednesday? So I had two days to come up with this idea and I said, right, I'll write 150 cheeses for you. And then realised that I only really knew 50. I've been using the same 50 British and Irish cheeses for the last few years, which sounds a bit shameful, or, or a lot, I don't know. So in the last few months, I've tasted 100 new cheeses. Where do you get all these cheeses from? Um, well, they're all from Britain and Ireland. And it ter- so everyone's got really into online sales. It's lockdown. So a lot of the, some I bought straight from cheesemakers. Mostly I bought them from shops because I didn't want to tell the cheesemaker that I was buying their cheese in case I didn't put it in the book, you know? So seven o'clock every morning, and my wife and I would taste five to seven cheeses. Is she, happy with, is she happy with that? Yeah, she was very nice about it. She's actually a writer, too. She writes okay. historical fiction. So she's got good words. And uh, so I give her the cheeses and then say, what's that flavour? Tell me a name for that flavour. Um, she was very nice about it. And it seems to have maintained our weight quite well, oddly enough, in, in four months of lockdown. So I also I might write a diet book next which is just all over the place now yeah i know right yeah yeah i was thinking of keep fit but not so much um (laughs) so there was a long way of saying that in terms of experience turning chickens it's really great to eat a lot of new cheeses and do the thing that i used to do when i was a retail cheesemonger and working in the shop is that every morning you take all the cheese out of the cellar out of the fridge you put it on the counter and you taste all of it so you taste 50 60 cheeses, little bits, but throughout the morning because they're all changing and all ripening. And so you are honing your taste all the time, your perception of flavour, your ability to describe it, and you will be so attuned to tiny changes in flavour. And then when I stopped doing so much of that and did more talking and writing, I felt like I was losing it. So this experience of spending months really sitting inside either writing or eating cheese. So this part of the podcast is also the Portuguese phrase. Uh, it's at the end of the podcast. I, I tell my guests to sell their fish, which nice. means to talk about yourself. You already started talking a little bit. What's the future Quite for you? Lot. You know, where people can find you, what's next for you and all of that. I'm actually, I've got two book deals. So I'm also supposed to be writing a book called A Cheesemonger's Tour of France. And I'm supposed to be touring France right now. So every time, every now and again, every few days, my phone goes up with a reminder saying, go to the Auvergne or go to, go to the South, you know. So I put that on hold to write this other book, but hopefully next year I'll be tearing around France. I've now got one year to write instead of two. So I'll be charging around France, um, talking to cheesemakers really fast and, uh, and eating a lot of French cheese. I think that's about it. Ned, thank you very much. 
I hope people learn more about cheese, you know, do their research. For my Italian and Japanese listeners, I'm sorry, but Ned, you know, he still, <laughs> he still likes you. Just... We do another show and I'll attend <laughs> more countries. Exactly. That'd be great. We just cover <laughs> all the countries. Thank you very much. This was a pleasure. Same, same to you. Thanks, David. Goodbye. Thank you very much for listening to the episode. I'm so grateful for all the messages and comments that you have left. And if you haven't done that, don't forget also to subscribe to the podcast, share, tell your friends all about the chickens we are turning and the dishes we are breaking. You can follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes, on the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes, and you can also send me an email to info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. Don't forget I release an episode every Tuesday and Friday of each week, so stay tuned all the time. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. Have an amazing day. Adios.